Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Aircox. Here are today's top stories. Maui's beauty turns to devastation as wildfires rage on and the death toll has risen. We hear from locals and how the federal government is stepping in to help. We have updates on former President Trump's ongoing legal challenges. Special Counsel Jack Smith urging a speedy trial as possible Georgia indictment looms. GOP lawmakers challenge FBI Director Christopher Wray on what he said about an internal memo. They say new information raises questions about the accuracy of his recent testimony. Four American hostages in Iran released from prison into house arrest. The Biden administration has been negotiating with the Iranian regime over their eventual release from the country. And shocking violence in Ecuador. A presidential candidate who spoke out against organized crime is murdered. We have the details. Tragedy strikes in Maui as wildfires continue to rage on. Rescue operations are underway with many people seeking safety. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. Oh my God! Maui, a paradise known for its beautiful beaches and landscapes. This looks like Baghdad or something. Is now facing one of its worst nightmares. At least 36 lives have been lost in wildfires in western Maui. And hospitals are filled to the brim. Strong winds from Hurricane Dora blew the flames across freeways and into neighborhoods. Video footage from Tuesday shows how close the fire got to some people. And it was such a thick black smoke that we immediately just left our homes. We barely grabbed anything. I, I literally didn't grab any clothes. I grabbed my important papers, but everything that we own you know, in all my 50 years of life is completely burned to the ground. Some people even fled into the ocean to try to stay alive. And the Coast Guard came to the rescue, pulling 14 people out of the sea. We also received some support from several Good Samaritans uh, in that in that area. But it was a, um, a really rapidly developing scene um, and pretty harrowing for the, the, um, the victims that had to jump into the water and, of course, uh, you know, the first responders also. Thousands of tourists and residents are being evacuated from Maui to Oahu due to the ongoing wildfires. And seen from above, satellite imagery shows before and after the devastation. And sadly, one of Hawaii's iconic banyan trees, standing tall since 1873, was also burned. The Hawaiian National Guard has been supporting firefighters by using helicopters to transport and spill huge buckets of water. Uh, Lahaina looks like a bomb went off. There is nothing left. The entire village has been turned into rubble. There is no cell phone. There's no electricity. There's no uh, devices to be used anywhere. Over 11,000 residents are isolated, unable to use their cell phones. And it could be weeks before cell phone service is restored. But there is some hope if you are worried about someone. You can call 1-800-RED-CROSS to possibly locate your loved one. President Biden on Thursday said the federal government will be stepping in to assist. Uh, we have just approved a major disaster declaration for Hawaii, which will get aid in the hands of the people desperate and desperately needing help now. He also said anyone who's lost a loved one or whose home has been damaged or destroyed is going to get help immediately.
And he added that people can visit disasterassistance.gov to see if they're eligible for assistance. Jason Perry, NTD News. New updates on former President Trump's legal challenges. He and his aide, Walt Nauta, pled not guilty to new charges in the classified documents case. Trump's Mar-a-Lago property manager is also facing charges in this updated indictment. NTD's Melina Weisskopf has more. So these charges relate to Mar-a-Lago security footage. Special counsel Jack Smith alleges that not only Trump, but his aide Walt Nada and his property manager at Mar-a-Lago, Carlos de Oliveira, schemed to delete security footage at Mar-a-Lago that federal prosecutors had sought in their investigation into the classified documents case. But Carlos de Oliveira has not yet had the chance to enter that plea deal because his arraignment has been delayed due to a local level holdup. So that's in Florida, but here in D.C., Trump's attorneys are expected to be here tomorrow to meet with special counsel Jack Smith in a hearing over proposed restrictions over what Trump is allowed to talk about in that 2020 election case. Jack Smith is pushing for a speedy trial here today. He proposed a January 2nd start date for that trial. Trump is next set to appear here in D.C. on August 28th, which is around the same time that we are expecting to see some new charges brought against Trump from Georgia. The district attorney could charge uh, 12 or more indictments against multiple people. She's looking at racketeering charges, which would allow her to charge multiple people who she claims were involved in election interference. The crux of the question here is whether Trump pressured local election officials to keep him in power, to keep him in the White House. One big question here is that hyped up phone call that Trump had with the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where he was discussing his concerns of election fraud, asking if they would be able to find around 11,000 votes, which is the margin that Trump had lost by. So we could see those indictments coming forward as soon as next week. Fannie Willis, which is the district attorney, says that she promises to press charges no later than September 1st. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And now to the 2024 election. Former President Trump refusing to sign the Republican National Committee's loyalty pledge to support the GOP's eventual presidential nominee. And a new ad backing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is targeting his biggest rival. NTD's Sam Wong has the story. On Wednesday, former President Trump targeted the Republican National Committee, saying that he won't sign the loyalty pledge to support the future nominee. So they want you to sign a pledge, but I can name three or four people that I wouldn't support for president. So right there, there's a problem. The Republican frontrunner did not specify whom he wouldn't support, but he did say that entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and Senator Tim Scott have been, quote, very nice to him. The statement comes ahead of the first RNC primary debates kicking off in Wisconsin later this month, which requires all candidates to sign the pledge. Trump told Newsmax that he will decide next week whether or not to attend the debate. Meanwhile, a super PAC called Never Back Down launched two new campaign ads backing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The commercials highlighted Trump's clashes with the governor of Iowa and New Hampshire, suggesting that the former president is dividing the Republican Party. When I spoke to Kim, I said, well, you want to remain neutral? I said, that's strange. Without me, you know she was not going to win. You know that, right? Trump, he's all about himself. Never Back Down has reportedly spent almost $17 million so far on ads in the GOP presidential primary. Sam Wong, NTD News. How many FBI officers were behind a memo looking at traditional Catholics as extremists? FBI Director Christopher Wray said it was only one. 
But now, House Republicans reveal new evidence that they say contradicts Ray's testimony. NTD correspondent Arlene Richards has the latest. House Republicans say newly redacted documents they received reveal that more than one FBI field office was involved with an internal memo targeting traditional Catholics as potential violent extremists. On Wednesday, in a memo to FBI Director Christopher Wray, Representative Jim Jordan and Representative Mike Johnson challenged his recent testimony. Committee Chair Jim Jordan had questioned Ray last month about the memo, which had been leaked in January. Director, what's the difference between a traditional Catholic and a radical traditional Catholic? Uh, I'm not a, an expert on the, the Catholic uh, orders. Well, your FBI wrote a memo talking about radical traditional Catholics. I'm just wondering if you can define it for us. Well, what I can tell you is you're referring to the Richmond product, which was a single product by a single field office, which as soon as I found out about it, I was aghast and ordered it withdrawn and removed from FBI systems. Jordan read a page from the memo that described the proposed investigation. Provide new opportunities to mitigate extremist threat through outreach to traditional Catholic parishes and the development of sources with the placement and access to report on places of worship. That's pretty fancy language for they're trying to put informants in the parish, in the church. That's what this memorandum said. Lawmakers said that on July 25th, the FBI produced a third version of the Richmond document with fewer redactions which makes it clear Los Angeles and Portland FBI offices were involved. The lawmaker's memo says most concerning of all, the newly produced version of the document explicitly states that FBI Richmond coordinated with FBI Portland in preparing the assessment. The FBI told NTD that Director Ray's testimony on this matter has been accurate and consistent. While the document referred to information from other field office investigations of racially or ethnically motivated violent extremist subjects, that does not change the fact the product was produced by a single office. At the hearing last month, Ray said the memo didn't result in any investigation of Catholic churches. GOP lawmakers have given the FBI until August 23rd to provide more documentation related to the memo. Steph? Thanks, Arlene. Now turning our attention to Iran. The country is transferring four American hostages from prison to house arrest. This comes after a months-long negotiation by the Biden administration to bring five Americans home. In exchange, Iran expects five of its own prisoners to be released and six to seven billion dollars. The money is from oil sales and is currently frozen in South Korea as a result of sanctions. Three of the hostages have been identified as Iranian-Americans who were detained and sentenced over the past several years. One of them also has British citizenship. U.S.-based lawyer Jared Genzer represents one of them. The lawyer said in a statement today that he expects the four prisoners will be held at a hotel under guard by Iranian officials under house arrest. The White House said in a statement that the Biden administration will continue to fight for their eventual release back to the United States. A presidential candidate in Ecuador has been assassinated. Fernando Villavicencio was a vocal critic of corruption and organized crime. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the tragic incident, which occurred during an evening campaign event in northern Quito. The murder of candidate Fernando Villavicencio shocked the South American country. He was reportedly shot in the head after leaving the campaign event. 
suspect in the crime later died of injuries sustained in a shootout, and six others have so far been arrested. A criminal gang called Los Lobos, the Wolves, has claimed responsibility. Los Lobos is the second largest gang in Ecuador with some 8,000 members, many of whom are in prison. Nine people, including a candidate for the legislature and two police officers, were injured. Ecuador's outgoing president, Guillermo Lasso, called the murder an attempt to sabotage the electoral process. Este es un... This is a political crime which has the character of terrorism. But Lasso says voting will go ahead as planned on August 20th. Security was one of the major issues in the presidential contest. Via Vincencio's party recently discussed suspending campaigning due to political violence, including the July murder of the mayor of Manta. Via Vincencio opposed the suspension, saying it would be an act of cowardice. A few days before the assassination, the presidential candidate promised change. Even though they threaten me, with the mafia there is no agreement. The police know where the mafia are and do not intervene. The murder prompted anger from Via Vincencio's supporters toward former President Rafael Correa. Via Vincencio was an outspoken detractor of Correa when he worked as a journalist. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison for defamation over statements made against the former president, but he fled to indigenous territory within Ecuador and later was given asylum in Peru. He returned after Correa left office. Via Vincencio had on Tuesday made a report to the attorney general's office about an oil business, but no further details of his report were made public. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, the FDA makes a surprising remark on ivermectin and COVID-19. It appears to contradict what the agency has been saying about the drug over the past two years. New inflation data released today, and for the first time in 13 months, the pace of inflation sped up. What does this mean for Americans? And the FBI discovers more than 200 sex trafficking victims in an operation lasting just two weeks. We speak with an anti-sex trafficking activist to learn more after the break. surprising reversal, the FDA now says doctors are free to prescribe ivermectin to treat COVID-19. This is according to a lawyer representing the FDA during oral arguments on Tuesday. There are three instances I'd like to point the court to in the record that show that FDA explicitly recognizes that doctors do have the authority to prescribe ivermectin to treat COVID. The FDA tweeted in August of 2021, you are not a horse, you are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. The post led users to an FDA page that says people should not use ivermectin to prevent or treat COVID-19. And the post went viral. In other statements, the FDA also said that ivermectin isn't authorized or approved to treat COVID-19. Three doctors brought a lawsuit against the FDA saying the agency unlawfully interfered with their medical practice. They say they were terminated over efforts to prescribe ivermectin to patients. Ivermectin is approved by the FDA for human use. The lawyer for the FDA argued the agency was only trying to share information and not trying to prohibit anyone from doing anything. 
And a new report on the Consumer Price Index is, index is out today. And for the first time in more than 12 months, inflation ticked up on an annual basis. The CPI rose 3.2 percent for the year ending July. This is higher than June's 3 percent annual increase. Despite the uptick in the headline numbers, the July report showed that underlying inflation continued its cooling streak. For more details, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an economic researcher. And here with me to break down the CPI report is Sam Burns, Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research. So, so Sam, I was thinking maybe to start off, maybe give us some notable contributing items in today's report. Yeah, the CPI report today was basically in line with consensus expectations. And probably the biggest thing holding the CPI, and particularly the core CPI, up still is the uh, the owner's equivalent rent or the housing component. Uh, that's contributing probably you know 80 90 percent of the overall rise in the uh, in the CPI uh, for the month, uh, and so that's that's really still a, a key factor. But we know that that's a kind of a lagged measure, and will probably continue to con come down in the coming months. So overall, it's a fairly reassuring report in that everything except for housing is is pretty moderate right now and, and actually close to a zero inflation rate. What about energy? Gas prices seems to be ticking up a little bit at the pump recently. That's right. Yeah, we've seen oil prices and gas prices start to tick up lately. That didn't show up in this report, but it probably will show up in the next month or the month after uh, report. We'll probably see an uptick in the energy and gasoline prices. Um, so they, they've been down some before, so this will be sort of a, a rebound. Um, I think, you know, the, the general trend for oil prices is probably still going to be kind of in a range. So my guess is that it won't be a persistent trend, but it will be a rebound in the next month or two. What do you think contributed most to the slight uptick in, uh, in the headline inflation number? Well, yeah, the overall year-over-year -year headline inflation number ticked up uh, from 3 to 3.2, uh, mostly because the, uh, the, the month that we dropped out of the 12-month calculation from a year ago was, uh, was very low. <clears throat> so even the 0.2% that we got this month, which is a pretty moderate reading, was higher than the month that we dropped out of the calculation. So that means the year-over-year -year figure goes up temporarily. Uh, but I think the overall trend, and certainly the last several months, show pretty muted readings for the overall CPI. And so I think the general trend is still lower, even if we did see an uptick uh, this month, just because of the noise in the, uh, in the monthly data. And of course, the market's still convinced that we're in a downward trend for this inflation battle. Generally speaking, I think that's right. I think bond yields are generally expecting uh, inflation to continue to come down. Uh, most of the uh, market pricing now shows that they do not expect the Fed to raise rates in September. Um, there might be another one later in the year, but that's still uncertain. Um, so I think the worry about the Fed in terms of inflation has really uh, gone down a lot. Uh, we may not get rate cuts anytime soon, but at least we probably will not get any more rate hikes, uh, given that inflation is continuing to decline. And thank you for your time today, Sam. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Crime, homelessness, and more. That's what residents in Portland are dealing with on a regular basis. The state of Oregon is now creating a new task force to improve living conditions. NTD's Arian Pazdar reports. Oregon Governor Tina Kotak is creating a task force to improve the situation in Portland. She made the announcement in a Wednesday press release, saying that it's no secret that downtown Portland has faced an onslaught of challenges in recent years. The governor says the situation in Portland is affecting the entire state's economy. Insurance rates go up, uh, uh, property values go down. Jim Fuda is a public safety advisor and former military consultant for the Department of Justice. 
He says living conditions in the city are affecting residents on a regular basis. The new task force will have five committees. Vision and value, clean streets, crime and vandalism, unsheltered homelessness and tax competitiveness. Do you think a stronger police presence would be a good first step in the right direction in Portland? Well, I, I, well one, of course, you have these homeless camps that cause all kinds of problems and not the personnel uh, to take care of it. He added, however, that he agrees with the plan Oregon is laying out, saying a similar strategy previously worked in other places. The task force is set to meet multiple times over the next three months to work on an action plan. Also this week, a Washington, D.C. councilman appealing for change after an increase in shootings. We are clearly in a, war in a war zone. I went to one crime scene where there were 106 rounds on the ground. He's now calling on the federal government to deploy the National Guard to protect the community and for stricter gun laws. It's not just Portland. Cities across the U.S. are battling crime, homelessness, drug abuse and more. What could be done to change that? I think it comes back. Um, I, I can't emphasize this enough, accountability. There's always been homeless people. There's always been the mentally ill on the street. There's always been, been drug addict people on the street. However, it was never like it was today because there was some form of accountability. He said a big part of accountability is to charge offenders for the crimes they commit, serious ones as well as petty ones, such as shoplifting or drug possession. How do you expect a person hooked on fentanyl, bent over at the waist, can't put a coherent sentence together, and you go to him, do you want to go to treatment? He says such individuals should be tried in mental health courts if needed. Arian Pastar, NTD News. In California, robberies are getting caught on video. Some are getting more creative and daring. Let's see what some thieves have been doing. In Sacramento, footage shows two thieves using a forklift to steal an ATM machine in an attempted robbery last Wednesday. One suspect wearing construction gear is seen knocking down the machinery from a safe credit union on Watt Avenue in North Sacramento while the other one is waiting in a white pickup truck nearby. The machinery is loaded in the vehicle and the second suspect drives away with it, but it later drops it on a busy road in Sacramento, causing both a traffic jam and an early morning collision. Both suspects fled the scene and have yet to be identified or located. In San Diego, a bike thief had a double stroke of luck when he found an open garage full of bikes as well as a very affectionate guard dog who just wanted to play. The San Diego Police Department released the surveillance footage from the garage on August 3rd. The thief walked away with a bike and then rolled it back into the open garage to take a moment to interact with the friendly golden retriever who had wandered out from the main house. The video shows the dog playing with the thief and rolling over for belly rubs. You're the coolest dog I've ever known. I love you too. Anyway. The thief then casually strolls away with the bike as the dog looks on, before appearing to follow his late-night playmate out of the garage. And in a two-week sting, the FBI has found 200 sex trafficking victims and 59 missing children. The human trafficking is the fastest-growing and second-largest criminal industry in the world. And in the U.S., sex trafficking generates about $32 billion by some estimates. Earlier today, I spoke with anti-sex trafficking activist Yako Buyens for his perspective. His own sister is a survivor of trafficking, which spurred his work to try to end it for good. Yako Buyens, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on our show. 
200 sex trafficking victims and 59 missing children found in two weeks. What does it take to find this amount of victims in such a short period of time? Yeah, thank you for having me on. A massive operation, uh, you know, a collaboration between federal government, in this case, of course, the FBI, but working with local law enforcement, it's impossible to do it without local law enforcement because of jurisdiction, because of warrants, because of you know, the legal aspect to it. And then collaborating with NGOs, non-government organizations who really carry the bulk of the intelligence of what's happening. Normally, it will start with an NGO that will get tips, will get information, maybe one or two rescues that then opens up an awareness to a network, a cell. And, and you're talking anything from six to 18 months of investigation, uh, give or take this one more closer to the nine month sector, but it's a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes, undercover, collecting data and, and intelligence. And there's so many more victims still out there. How do people fall victim usually? Yeah, look, as, as amazing as it is to rescue 100, you know, in our organization, we rescued eight in the last three weeks, you know, in, in Dallas proper. We have to understand the nature of the crime. It's a nature of, of, it's a crime of demand. And unfortunately, America demands sexual exploitation. That's just, we're the number one nation on earth demanding the exploitation of human beings through sex. So supply meets demand. So as we rescue and we have to rescue all those who are afflicted, we have to start having the conversation of curbing demand. And, and then you got to look at what feeds demand. And so we have to touch on pornography. Porn is a drug. Porn feeds the demand of the sexual exploitation of persons, which ultimately will lead to children being exploited, children being exploited in pornography or also exploited through sex trafficking. And the sex trafficking industry is worth about $32 billion in the U.S. alone. You advise state and federal governments on gaps in their policies on this front. What are some of the most common gaps? I'd say, you know, one of the, one of the most universal gaps across all 50 states would be prosecuting according to the law. You know, before 2015, there was not designated anti-sex trafficking law. We have those on the books in all 50 states. I'll take California for an example. Probably the state with the second toughest laws on sex trafficking of minors, yet there's no prosecutions. So if you don't prosecute according to the law, then the predators, those out there, understand that it's a weak law. That law really means nothing, Stephanie. It, it has no power if your district attorneys, and I'd say that's our number one problem in the country, is the district attorneys not prosecuting child sex crimes as child sex crimes. They plead them down to some other misdemeanor or a lower uh, cause, right? So, but gaps in the law currently is protecting the voice of the child. Something like forensic interview, allowing the child to have a forensic interview and not being cross-examined, not re-traumatizing the child. Uh, combating the sexual exploitation of children online. We've got massive gaps, huge, gigantic gaps. And it's all under the banner of Section 230, which every social media platform gets protection. Your news outlet does not get that protection, but they do. And, and it creates these giant holes on the Internet for predators to operate and hide and exploit children. And so the largest reform, I would say, for our nation has to happen in the online platforms, in your social media platforms, on how predators are so easily able to operate without any real repercussion. 
Thank you so much. Jaco Buyens, it's great to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Coming up, as wildfires continue to devastate Hawaii, tourists are having to cut their visits short. What should you do if a Hawaiian vacation is in your travel plans? And an investigative journalist weighs the latest headlines for the top two presidential candidates. Did they get similar treatment? We'll take a look after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. At least 36 people were killed in wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui. Thousands of tourists and residents are being evacuated as President Biden declares an emergency. Former President Trump pleads not guilty to new charges in the classified documents case. He's also expecting a fourth indictment coming from Georgia in the coming days. And four Iranian-American hostages in Iran are released from jail and into house arrest at a hotel. In exchange, at least $6 billion in frozen funds are being released to Iran. Hawaii is a major travel destination, but should tourists cancel their plans to vacation there because of the massive wildfires? NTD's Colin Fredrickson lets us know. Catastrophic wildfires are moving through Hawaii, destroying homes and businesses. At least 36 people have been confirmed dead, and the Hawaiian state government has been evacuating travelers. Hawaii has eight major islands. The fires are mainly on the island of Maui. There are reportedly three big fires on Maui, including one in popular tourist destination Lahaina. There are also at least three big fires on the island of Hawaii, from which the entire state gets its name. It's commonly referred to as the Big Island. Today we got about oh, a little over 11,000 travelers out of Maui. Um, if we add in the, the airline personnel, it's 11,400 or so. Hawaiian authorities still don't know exactly how the fires started. They advise not traveling to Maui or the Big Island at this time. The whole state, in terms of emergency responders, transportation, aviation, is focused on rescue and evacuation. So one could view your leisure trip to Hawaii as a distraction from, from um, this major disaster. Hotel planner CCO Philip Ballard suggests not going to any island in Hawaii right now. He says they're all hands on deck, with everyone helping out with the fires. Maui's Kahului Airport is currently open and is filled with evacuating tourists. The two airports on the Big Island, Hilo International Airport and Ellison Onizuka Kona International Airport, are both open as well. Airline carriers are reporting inbound flight cancellations and delays. Check with your airline to see if it's letting you rebook at no charge or offering refunds. If you are traveling to other areas in Hawaii, like Oahu, Kauai, uh, any of the other islands, then it's actually still safe. Hospitality expert Kaselin Lawson says tourists may not be affected by the fires at all if they travel to any of the six other islands. However, she also suggests postponing any current Hawaii vacation plans. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And next, we reflect on recent updates on President Biden and former President Trump. Award-winning investigative journalist Alex Newman shares his analysis of the biggest developments this week for the two front-runners in the presidential race. 
with a look at how these stories are being weighed in the media. Alex Newman, thanks for coming on. Great to see you again. Now, former President Trump says he will plead not guilty in the documents case against him. And he also says he's expecting new criminal charges against him in the Georgia case. So what do you, what's your take on these developments? Well, to me, and I think to a lot of unbiased observers, this really looks like some of the most extreme political persecution I've ever seen. Uh, even coming from somebody who grew up in the third world and is used to this kind of thing, uh, this is really extraordinary. The last I looked, uh, there was something like 78 felony charges with more potential charges looming. Uh, they're trying to take down lawyers who have helped him, who might help him. Uh, this is really unprecedented. Meanwhile, we have the revelations out of the House Oversight Committee showing that at least $20 million in payments from Russian, Ukrainian, and Kazakh oligarchs going into bank accounts connected to the Biden family. And the media is not talking about it. We haven't seen any criminal charges yet. Uh, the dichotomy here between the treatment of these two different individuals and these two different issues is just absolutely glaring. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, so there is this strong contrast, seemingly, between the coverage of Biden's uh, business, family business dealings and Trump's various court cases. Why do you think there is, you know, such a contrast between the levels of coverage here? Well, and, and this is not something new. We've seen this going back to even during the presidential campaign. The Hunter Biden laptop was, of course, uh, barely mentioned at all by the media. If they mentioned it, it was only to dismiss it as potential Russian disinformation. Uh, and, of course, every negative thing, real and imagined, about Donald Trump was endlessly hyped. Uh, this happened in the 2016 campaign as well. And I think there's a few things going on. One is that Donald Trump, uh, love him or hate him, you know, regardless of whether you like him or his policies or his personality, uh, he truly has been anti-establishment in the true sense of the word. He has gone up against the powers that be, whether it be uh, the established forces in big government, uh, the, the forces promoting closer global integration, uh, globalism, if you will, to borrow a term from Donald Trump. Uh, and they really don't like that. And of course, the media is very much connected to this establishment. Uh, another obvious issue here is that the media kind of sold Joe Biden to the American people. And so for them to come back now and say, whoops, turned out all those allegations were not only true, it was worse than we even realized. Here's the, the documents out of Congress proving tens of millions of dollars in what strongly appear to be bribe payments. You know, that would be the ultimate egg all over their face. And, and I think a lot of them have a lot of pride. They don't want to admit that they helped put America in the position that it's in right now. So it's a very good question. And uh, frankly, I'd like to ask some of the folks over at CNN and NBC and ABC, you know, what's the deal? Are you a journalist or are you a propagandist for the man in the White House? And there's been some concerning developments this week in terms of the, the Biden administration's approach to free speech and the free press. What would you say are your concerns here? Well, I would say I don't think we've ever seen the kind of hostility to freedom of speech, to the First Amendment, really, in the entire history of the United States. I mean, we've had episodes where senior people in government—I mean, going back to the founding of the Republic, the Alien and Sedition Acts—we've had episodes where, uh, in our history, where the federal government has turned against free speech and has tried to crack down. But we've never seen anything like this, where the White House is directly coordinating with communications platforms to shut down people's speech. Uh, now, of course, they're trying to weed out reporters from the White House press pool. And I think that's largely because they don't want 
uncomfortable questions. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to have to answer uncomfortable questions. They don't want that on television, you know, stumbling around over questions that really the American people want to know about. It's kind of awkward for them. And so I understand where they're coming from. But th this sort of hostility to free speech and, and the real free press uh, is something that is, in my view, unprecedented in American history. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this from, uh, from a White House, from a presidential administration. Alex Newman, always great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. And in Texas, ranchers are struggling to feed their cattle. For the second summer in a row, drought and heat pose an existential threat to their livestock. An oppressive heat wave is smoking Texas this summer. Triple-digit temperatures have erased the benefits of a relatively rainy spring. July 2023 was the hottest July on record in Austin, the state capital. The pastures, we got grass in them, but they're burning up. And, you know, now we hit August, and this is normally our hottest, driest time of the year. We may not get much moisture, if any, this month, and that's uh, something that you got to plan for. Henderson is worried. The 62-year-old rancher manages a herd of about 150 cows in East Texas. Drought forced him to sell roughly 30 cows in 2022. Ranchers in East Texas had to sell more than 2.6 million cattle last year. And, and the only thing I can think of you, sometimes it calls for selling cows. Sometimes, you know, knocking your, taking your numbers down is the only way that you're going to make it. The senior is a 39-year-old rancher in Tennessee Colony, Texas. He says the heat also impacts the cattle's reproduction habits and calf growth. On the calf side, if it's hot and the mother does not have any grass or anything like that to constantly feed them, but uh, it impacts the, the, the milk. So the milk is not there, so the calf doesn't get as big. Henderson and Davis said they're spending more money than usual on animal feed and hay. Those products are selling early at Colony Ranch Supply. And so just like today, we had uh, three different, uh, I had to take three different deliveries with two round bells each to, because the people just are, don't have the grass and the hay. And here we are August the 1st when normally we wouldn't start feeding, feeding until November the 15th. Texas is the top producer of beef in the U.S., but the red meat could get more expensive. Next year, when we start the year over, there will be less cattle numbers out there. So with supply and demand, with, the, with everybody wanting to eat that ribeye and that T-bone or those ribs, um, there's going to be less supply, so the price of beef will once again take a, a rise. According to the Department of Agriculture, the Lone Star State was home to 12.7 million cattle and calves in January 2022. And extreme summer temperatures are expected to continue affecting much of the U.S. this month. One family doctor in California is spreading awareness of the dangers of heat exhaustion and how to stay cool during heat waves. NTD's David Lamb reports. Many parts of California are expecting extreme heat this month. We are expecting a lot of um, uh, extreme temperatures in California uh, in the upcoming weeks, and it is important to prevent heat stroke or heat-related illnesses. Temperatures at California State Capitol expected to hit at least 90 degrees Fahrenheit for 21 days, labeled as excessive heat. This resulted in a judge temporarily banning Sacramento from clearing homeless encampments for at least 14 days. 
One vital thing is staying hydrated. Dr. Kimberly Chang says our bodies lose water very quickly to stay cool, such as through sweating to release heat. So you have to drink a lot of water and fluids throughout the day, even if you don't feel thirsty. And I would say we would want you to avoid alcohol, avoid caffeine, caffeine, things like black teas or coffee. The reason is it makes you urinate more and that dehydrates you further. She recommends taking beverages that have some sugar and some electrolytes, such as salt, potassium, and chloride. Some of the heat symptoms can include fevers, lots of muscle cramps, pain, and feeling extremely hot. People may also face confusion, loss of consciousness, and dizziness. When you think about vulnerability, think about people who can't really regulate their body temperatures well. And so you think about babies, young people, children, and then you also think about elderly folks. Wearing breathable fabrics and limiting time outdoors would be other ways to prevent heat dangers. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, where do Cal and Stanford go from here? The Pac-12 is down to just four, and each may be looking for a new landing spot. And a Sherpa climbs the world's 14 tallest mountains in record time. Now he wants to become the youngest person to scale all those peaks twice. We'll have his story after the break. Now for your sports news, we have NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the conference realignment chatter is still ongoing. Can you tell us what's the latest? Yeah, the ACC reportedly met this week to discuss adding uh, Cal and Stanford, but no vote was taken, which usually means they just they know they don't have the votes. Now, I think the holdup here is uh, financially that these two schools just don't move the needle for them, and they're trying to um, catch up TV revenue-wise with uh, the Big Ten and the SEC. You know, this isn't USC and UCLA, which have the coveted LA markets. Uh, meanwhile, being on the West Coast, they're more than 2,000 miles away from the nearest ACC school, so I would think travel as uh, some kind of an issue for them, too. So what do you see happening now? I still think the Big 12 is their best option. I know they don't line up academically-wise, but geography-wise, the Big 12 is right next door in Arizona. Financially-wise, they pay out a little bit more than what the, uh, the Pac-12 was paying them. But for whatever reason, there doesn't seem to be mutual interest at this point. I'm sure Cal and Stanford are exhausting the other possibilities first, but the Big 10 has already passed on them. The SEC isn't discussing them. The ACC, as I just said, is kind of lukewarm on them, but I don't think that's a dead issue yet. I think they know they've got a little bit less than a year to decide. Uh, meanwhile, I think they know they've got an invite, a standing invite uh, to the Mountain West Conference if all else falls through. Now shifting gears to baseball a bit, Shohei Otani picked up his 10th win of the season last night. What's the significance of that? Well, you know, Otani, I mean, he is largely in uncharted territory right now. Really only him and Babe Ruth, could you say, are this good as a pitcher and a hitter. He got his 10th win last night as a pitcher. He's already got 40 home runs. Now, this is his second season to have 10 or more wins and 10 or more homers. He's the first player ever to do that. And Babe Ruth is the only one who ever did it even once, and that was over 100 years ago. 
Basically what this means is he's front, front runner for the MVP award and I think everybody thinks he's going to get probably a record-breaking contract come this offseason. Now moving on to the alleged hazing scandal that's plagued Northwestern. What's the latest there? Well, there's no more lawsuits uh, known that have been filed yet, but their athletic director, Derek Gregg, did not seem to be too happy to see some football staffers wearing some shirts that are in support of now-fired head coach Pat Fitzgerald. I believe the shirt said, Cats Against the World 51. 51 was a number Fitzgerald wore when he was a standout player, at, actually at Northwestern back in the 90s. Now, I'm sure these administrators know that whatever they're saying or doing right now is going to be heavily scrutinized, whether in the media or possibly in the courtroom. As far as the lawsuits, there have been 14 known lawsuits against them, alleging either hazing or some kind of mistreatment. So this likely won't be settled for quite a long time, it doesn't look like. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Steph. And finally, a guide who climbed the world's 14 tallest mountains in record time is looking toward another goal. He wants to become the youngest person to scale all those peaks twice. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the high altitude mountaineer. Dava, can you hear us? We are on the summit of K2. On the summit of K2 last month, Tanjan Sherpa and Kristen Harala scaled the 14 highest mountains in the world in record time. The previous record was 189 days. This pair did it in 92. Three months, one day. Three months, one day. Yes, one day. And thanks to Seven Summit. Yeah. And to all of you. And to Seven Summit and the strongest Sherpa in the world, the strongest team. Now, 35 year old Tenjin is eyeing another record, climbing all 14 peaks twice. 48 year old Sanya Sherpa is the only other climber who's done so. Each peak is more than 26,000 feet above sea level, but it's a tough way to make a living. Without any options and opportunities left, they are often compelled to move abroad. It is not possible to just continue climbing mountains as you grow older. So what else is there than to think of migrating abroad that can all be stopped if they were given land and houses and opportunities here? Tanjin has already climbed seven of the mountains twice. He hopes to scale the remaining seven by next spring. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.